Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today's episode is sponsored by the new book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion While Doing It. Two years ago, Steven Spielberg said, there's going to be an implosion. Mega-budget movies are going to go crashing to the ground, and that's going to change the paradigm. Well, just recently, as he's promoting his new film, Bridge of Spies, he clarified that statement by saying that he never really predicted the implosion at all, but was pointing out that the movement, the trend for the theatrical experience was being left to these big-budget, mega-budget movies, such as the superhero genre. Well, if you have two or three or four of them in a row that don't work, that could change the structure of how the film industry goes about financing their films in the future. Interesting enough, Netflix had just released their film, Beasts of No Nation, in the theaters recently, the same time it's available on Netflix. Now, the movie, Beasts of No Nations, only grossed over $50,000 in 31 theaters. Now, a lot of people suspect that Netflix was doing this to get their film qualified for the Oscar nomination. Apparently, in the rules of the Academy, is that your film has to be played in a theater in order for it to officially qualify for an Oscar nomination. Now, if you look at this from the outside perspective, it looks like, yeah, nobody would want to go to the theater to see this film if it's available already on Netflix or any number of the services that we have available to us to watch content on demand. So maybe Spielberg is right. Maybe it's the time has come where all we are going to see in the movie theaters that are going to do well, that are going to make money, are these big mega budget movies. So where does that leave the independent? Where does that leave the uber independent? And that's why this book was written called How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion while doing it. It's available on Amazon. Just go to survivetheimplosion.com to get all the details. Speaking of the plight of the uber-independent filmmaker, we know that film production is no longer a barrier because anyone can pick up a camera and make a film today or use their smartphone. (laughs) We also know that distribution is no longer a barrier because anyone could upload their film online and sell it to the world right now. So that leaves marketing as the last barrier for all independent filmmakers. Well, we're in luck because today my special guest is Annalise Larson over at Varia.ca. .ca stands for Canada, because that's where she lives. So we have a fellow Canadian here to help us navigate the waters of independent film marketing. I first stumbled upon Annalise through all the tweets and Google Plus posts and Facebook posts of some shared content and a lot of stuff she was sharing I was really, really interested in. And she's been in the business for over 20 years, managing several, several digital marketing media campaigns for Uh, individual filmmakers, as well as larger corporations. So there's a lot of great nuggets here that we're going to be able to pull from. And if you're interested, she offers this online course called Becoming a Storypreneur, Digital Marketing Course for Screen Media Creatives. It's an exclusive 10-week program. It's online, um, so it hasn't opened yet. But I think in the spring of 2016, uh, she's going to release or open up more slots for this online course. And I'll put all the details in the show notes um, after this whole show is done. So without further ado, here is my guest, Annalise Larson, on the Film Trooper Podcast. Maybe tell us a little bit about your your journey in terms of where it went from filmmaking, film producing, to the world of digital marketing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, first of all, Scott, thanks for having me. It's always loved to talk about this kind of stuff um i know don't i love geeking out over it i know <laughs> i know i hope i hope your listeners appreciate it as much as i will appreciate having the conversation um yeah well i i live in canada hence the dot ca ah there you go <laughs> um i uh, and as you mentioned i did years and years ago uh started out uh went out to vancouver to uh, get training in film. Um, I'd had some sort of background in it already, doing sort of educational content for the university here on the prairies. Um, but decided I, you know, I was doing it for a job and decided, hey, maybe I should get some training in this. So I went out, uh, did, did something at the BAMP Center in electronic and film media way back in the day, and then went to UBC and finished my formal degree in film studies and, you know, made a couple of films and got done that and then started uh, doing the independent film thing. I was lucky to have some pretty amazing uh, like-minded women in my life, and we formed a company called Hot Roller Productions, and uh, just to sort of as a, as a collective to support each other and uh, work on mostly documentary type projects when we were starting out um, and then I was doing a lot of training because you don't at that in those times um, you went to film school and you didn't get a lot of producer training no yeah. <laughs> and I'd, I'd come to film via English so I you know I business was never a space that I thought I would be in like business and marketing but you know you kind of have to um adapt those skills when you are producing independent work and uh, so I did here in Canada um, Norman Jewison who mm -hmm. is a filmmaker has a school out in Toronto called the Canadian Film Centre so I went out there to uh, do their incubator uh, producer lab and that was a pretty amazing experience but just before that a couple of years before that I had um, a friend who uh, worked for a web development company in Vancouver and said, hey, you know, do you know anyone who could do <clears throat> mark online market research for our clients? Well, I'd been doing online market research, <laughs> essentially uh, online research for sure, for my documentaries that I was working on. So I said, well, I could do that. I could do that. <laughs> and, and, and I've always been able to, I'm really good at search. I always know kind of how to talk to the internet to get out of it what I need and um, you know back in the day there were no schools or training or anything to do you know digital marketing or anything like that that was totally I don't even think SEO is like even a term like, yeah, well, yeah, sort of yeah. it was sort of but that it really came into its own much you know much later yeah. you know? and I was doing this back in the day when there were crazy search engines like Hotbot and Altista <laughs> psychedelic colors and mountains and things well before google yeah, <laughs> there yeah. wasn't google back then um so anyway i was doing the things in tandem because the digital stuff was really flexible i could do it around everything else that i was doing and um uh you know it, it paid quite well um, so it sort of fed my film habit with my my marketing income. And so I was completely self-taught and mm -hmm. to this day uh, continue to be self-taught because, you know, I don't think you can ever, as you know, rest on your laurels in the online space because stuff changes all the time, which is one of the things I love about it because with every project I'm learning something new um, and uh, that's been pretty fantastic. So uh, 
truncating my story a little bit, I uh, became a mom and decided that filmmaking was less conducive to the kind of parent I wanted to be. And again, digital gave me that flexibility to work around my days with my kids. And uh, then about probably seven or eight years ago, the internet got fast enough to carry a strong video signal that didn't Mm -hmm. buffer itself to death. And uh, I decided that, Well, I didn't decide. I actually had filmmaking friends that were coming to me and wanting my help because they were trying to sort of figure out this online space and what it could do for their work. And that started to roll into doing some workshops and teaching for a lot of our big um, we were blessed or cursed, depending on who you talk to up here in Canada with uh, government funding for our creative work. Um, And uh, so organizations like Telefilm Canada and a bunch of others would hire me to be participate in teaching you know these visual storytellers across the country and I've always brought a unique perspective to it because um, you know everyone is sort of got the social media part of the digital marketing they understood what that looked like uh, mostly because they were you know everyone was doing it in their own lives they understood what what was applicable my kind of special perspective that I bring to it is on the SEO side is on that search space um, I get very excited maybe because I'm uh, you know come from my English background but I love language and I love the intersect intersection of language and data that happens in the space of search because it you know we have all these tools and ways to actually see how people are searching online which gives you as a creative person looking for an audience just oh just an amazing opportunity to get inside the head of your potential audience and really understand what it is they're looking for Mm -hmm. and you know potentially using that information to give them what they're looking for and then um you know start to build this sustainable creative life so that's sort of that that perspective and that data set is something that i've always brought to my work and brought to my teaching and i found that it is um I do this sort of keyword research intensive where you do sort of start to learn about the language of your audience in this way. And it seems for most people, even those who are most resistant um, to the new digital way of doing things, usually because they've had a very successful career in the old way of doing things, Mm -hmm. that the search piece, this keyword research piece is often the foot in the door, the, the, the aha moment where they go, oh, Oh, I, this is, I, I didn't know I could know all this stuff. (laughs) So, um, I found that, that, you know, people, I can get people excited about the data, (laughs) which is always a challenge. So, um, yeah. And I mean, the, the, the presentation that you're talking about was one that I did for the Vancouver Film Festival as part of their DNA of discoverability day this year. Um, and it was all about actually not necessarily looking at um, film, but taking four different case studies of creative people and dreamers who had had this idea um, and how they actually, through listening to the data, not just the search data, but all kinds of data, mm-hmm. were able to uh, build a sustainable creative life 
um, you know, and some of them are making ridiculously great livings at it. And some are just sort of, you know, making a decent living at it <laughs> and they're, and they're able to pay their bills and their mortgage. And at, at the end of the day, that's, that's almost a, a blessing in this stressful world of indie film. <laughs> well, that's interesting because like the, the presentation on sustainability, I mean, that's where we're finding now more and more, you know, filmmakers or is there a promise industry uh, where they can go where, you know, basically sort of the middle class is taken care of and we're seeing that sort of be depleted. Mm-hmm. And um, in your experience and studies of all this type of things, um, what is it that really filmmakers are selling? Are they really selling the film in order to uh, build sustainability or is it something else? Because I, I, was the, I was having this conversation with another filmmaker and I'm like, you hardly ever see like a very successful filmmaker like make one film and they made enough money to yeah. to to that they put put back into the next film. They're yeah. always hunting for more money, more money. We're even talking at the like Spielberg. Like you know, the yeah. guy has is worth billions, but you never see him go, "Well, I'm just going to throw down 30 million dollars of my own money and make my own movie." <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. if yeah. if he's not doing it, then what then what is it that you discovered that uh, sort of if you're pulling back the curtain of the to find the wizard, what 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 are filmmakers really selling in order to build that sort of sustainability? Well, I think there's a couple of ways at looking at it. I think first of all, the trap that most filmmakers fall into, and I do teach people other kinds of storytellers um, mm-hmm. that use the screen. So I've worked with people who do web series, television series, um, you know, interactive storytelling apps and games. But I think the trap that filmmakers are particularly susceptible to is thinking about their, and I will say they don't even really think of it as a business model, but I will give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're thinking of their business model project to project. So they put all of this effort into this one project and they build an audience around it if they've been smart and listened to all um, the great advice of people like you and me. <laughs> and, and they, okay, great, it's done. And I'm going to put it in a box and put it over. And I start again on the next project. But what they really need to do is start thinking of their body of work. Where are the through lines? Where's the places that I can build audience and carry them with me from project to project? So one of the ways to shift that thinking is to think of yourself not as a production company, but as a service company. Hmm. And if you're successful in, in really, again, getting into the head of your audience, understanding what it is that they want, even if they might not know that that's what they want, but looking at what they're responding to, looking at um, what gets them excited, what connects with them emotionally. And, and to some extent, you become in service to that. Now, again, a lot of filmmakers, especially those coming out of the old traditional project-to-project model and um, the government-subsidized model that we see here in Canada, uh, get really pissed off when I say that. Yeah, yeah. There is a, there is a fight. It's like, oh, yeah. Absolutely. What do you mean? That sounds like so much work. And I have to listen to the audience? What? Why would I want to do that? Well... Sure, you could be an artist who makes one great movie your whole life and then it's done, mm-hmm. you know, but and you, but it's very likely you'll be so burnt out by the time that it's over that you won't ever want to do it again or be able to. And I mean, I see this, 
the model around media. It doesn't matter whether it's broadcast television, um, Hollywood, indie film, or government subsidized systems that are, I would suggest, less market driven as we have in Canada and most other places in the world other than the US, are all terribly, terribly broken because mm -hmm. they're not actually giving the audience what they want. And our audiences have never been more empowered. They have a wealth of choice when it comes to how they spend their time and how and the stories that they want to consume. And because they are so empowered, you really do have to go to where they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and people don't want to do that or they feel incapable of doing that and um, get very depressed <laughs> about how to do that. But in reality, it's an incredibly exciting opportunity because you you don't have to have anyone in between you and your audience. You don't have to have a distributor. You don't have to have a broadcaster. You don't have to have a sales agent. You have the capability of going direct to an audience and going, I mean, it means you can be so much smarter. The more you understand who your core audience is, the more chances there are to monetize and the more strategic you can be about um, where you choose to develop presence. Like if I know that this audience that I'm embedded in and have know really, really well, and you do a lot of that work before you ever start, you know, um, trying to you know, ask anything from them. You try to find these communities because every every passion online has a community around it already. You do not have to build it from scratch. Mm -hmm. So you go to those niche communities. Maybe there there's an incredible community on Instagram or on Pinterest or Facebook or you know, like you, there are you you look at where the audience is and that determines what strategy you use. So you don't just, you know, do everything or do the generic same thing for every project. Um, you need to go where the audience is. And the more and more um, we can understand who our audience is, the more empowered we become as creators to have kind of this more collaborative relationship with our audiences. We're creating an opportunity for them. We're inviting them into this world that we want to create and get them engaged with. And, you know, there'll be stories that, that, that flow out of it that Sure, some of them could be movies. Maybe they're other things. Maybe, you know, they're a, a social media storyline that unfolds on Twitter. Maybe it's a digital web series. Um, you know, you just, I think it's an amazing, exciting thing, but it's a completely different way of thinking about it. And it means keeping your costs down because there is a ceiling to how expensive um, a story you can tell and still make a profit um, but it is possible it is absolutely 100% possible um, that's why I find like the case studies that I included in that particular presentation mm -hmm. was really about that like people who really understood I mean some of them have been doing it a very long time one of them goes back to 1999 um, but there's others that are only a couple years old. And the reaction to that um, presentation was I had a, a one guy come up to me and say, but, um, you know, it was just seems mostly like luck. And that, <laughs> you know, well, they've been doing it for so long that, you know, all the, all the, all the opportunities are gone, basically. I think he was telling me and they kind of just lucked into them. 
but uh, the reality is, is I mean, unless you're unless you're there, <laughs> you're not going to be there to get the op- next great opportunity. And there's opportunities unfolding all the time like you know these crazy daily stories on snapchat what could you do with that as mm-hmm. a storyteller i think like there's so many cool ways to tell stories now that don't have to cost an arm and a leg um and people just have to sort of shift their perceptions and thinking about who they want to be maybe maybe all they want to do is have a hobby where they make these you know even the cheap movies are expensive to make whether it's ten thousand or a hundred thousand dollars that's still a a lot lot of money (laughs) yeah so you know sure you could have a very expensive hobby that you do that but if you really are serious about a business then there's amazing opportunities for you definitely it's interesting you brought up you know switching from a production company mindset to a service company mindset in Mm -hmm. service to an audience and it's the AFM, the American Film Market, is uh, on, you know, coming up in a couple of weeks down in uh, Santa Monica. And I was there last year. And the interesting thing about that whole event, uh, the American Film Market or the Cannes Film Market or any of the traditional <laughs> film markets, is that you have all these producers, you know, vying to try to get their film picked up or sold to a sales agent. Or a sales agent has a collection of films that they're trying to sell off to other film buyers. Or they're trying, you know, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. But in the entire scenario, the entire week that that event goes on, the missing equation is the audience. There's no representation of what of the audience who's going to receive this media, which is why you see the same sort of, um, I don't know, sort of schlocky genre stuff that, that... is bought and sold in that world. And um, I just thought it was fascinating. I was talking to, uh, I think it was a security guard who's taking his, uh, <laughs> we, we, we're both just sitting on the benches and he's just looking at me like, you know, from my perspective, it's like, I think like it does it only works if you already know all the people inside. And I go, mm-hmm. and I said, yeah, it's true. But you see the one thing that's missing in this whole thing is the audience. There's no representation of the audience yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was interesting because I watch very closely what happens with movies coming out of Canada, obviously, because that's mm-hmm. where I am. And at TIFF, at the Toronto International Film Festival, looking at what Canadian movies got picked up, I think they were, were almost all international co-productions. So you get this outside, you know, you're able to, you get your government money and hey, other government will have this co-production. So we'll get your government money so we can make a bigger um we have a bigger budget than we could do just on our own. And what are we going to do with that bigger budget? We're going to hire a Holly, star from Hollywood because we know that that's what those and those are the movies that got distribution deals because that's how um, those are the kinds of product that the distributors know how to sell. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want to learn the new way. I mean, they're as bad as the, you know, the established filmmakers who don't want to learn way. The the established structures, the distributors, the sales agents, they only know how to how to work within the old system. None of them want to change. None of them want to learn this new way of doing things. So as the audience dwindles and, and I mean, there's going to be no one to show up, <laughs> you know, yeah. people aren't going to movie theaters. They're no. not in the same way, especially when we're talking indie film, which I would assume most of the people who are listening to this podcast are. Mm-hmm. We're not talking big Hollywood tentpole things. Like, um, there's an interesting experiment going on right now in the U.S. with Eli Roth, who's doing this small budget, 
movie. Right, right. Five million dollar budget. This you know this tiny little film, <laughs> this horror weird cannibal horror movie, um, and you know poor guy. You know he's so few resources. He only has about thirty or no, I'm sorry. He only has eight million dollars to market the thing. Whereas usually with a low end um, American release, you'd need thirty to thirty five million. Right. Well, my God, how many indie filmmakers in anywhere? <laughs> I mean, here in Canada, again, going back to our government-funded model, our government-funding body, Telefilm, only has $10 million to market the movies it invests in each year. And this guy is $8 million for one movie. <laughs> so wow. it's a little – It's a. Li- I'm, but what's interesting, he has been doing what he calls hyper-targeting. I don't think it's really hyper-targeting, but it's very interesting to see, you know, these bigger players – playing with bigger budgets, using $10 Facebook ads to do their focus group testing. (laughs) So I think that's really interesting. I'm very curious to see how his experiment uh, pans out. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, when we look at this, like the leverage is the audience now. I mean, um, we're looking at the book publishing industry, the music publishing industry, where the book publishing industry requires an author to already have an existing audience and, and do the marketing before they pick up the, you know, the ability to publish their, their book. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. the same thing with the music industry. It's like they expect you to have already built an audience and, uh, and you to do the marketing yourself before they do any yep. sort of, so the filmmakers are in that same boat Absolutely. and it, it's, it is kind of a wacky thing. Like why would you sign up with a publisher if you've already yeah. done all the legwork? So when we get geeky about the data and the searching and that's like, you know, what you what you've dived into, is there a set of tools or like your go to tools? I know there's uh, beyond just like the standard Google Analytics and and the free stuff like that, like AdWords. Is it like SEO Moz or something like that that you tend to use? All of those, all of the above. Oh, so you got them all in your arsenal. (laughs) Yeah. And there's something called Word, uh, Word Tracker, I think it's called. Mm. Um, cause I never like, I mean, I love Google in many ways, but I never, I don't trust it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, <laughs> Completely, no. Right. Yeah. So I always try to get it, try to use other data sets. I mean, the nice thing about, um, you get the best information when people are trying to get you to buy advertising. Interesting. So Google AdWords is their advertising platform, right? Yeah. So they yeah. give you all this information about search activity because they want you to buy ads to run against those phrases. Mm-hmm. Facebook Insights gives you all this data about, um, you know, you can audience size and stuff when by building out ads in their backend platform, they will do projections as to what size you know, an audience is based on the parameters and levers that you've pulled. Another great one, magazines that have an online component and that are trying to get you to sell, to buy advertising in their both online and offline iterations. You can sometimes get amazing demographic information um, from them because they're trying to sell you ads. So I find that often when I'm doing, you know, starting to do some of that research into these niche audiences that's the other thing i don't think i've mentioned yet is really the power comes not from saying my stories are going to appeal to everyone between 18 and 35 (laughs) right 
no wonder then you need thirty five million dollars to. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that because Emily Best from Seed and Spark. She's, oh, she's, I, she, <laughs> I know we are. She's my brain twin. I love her so. <laughs> so we're at the Portland Film Festival together, and she's doing her presentation, and she says, like, you know. If you say your audience is a demographic between like, you know, 18 and 25, we will kill you. Yes. <laughs> Beat you around the head and neck. Yeah. Talk some sense into you. Yeah. So I think that truly the power in this new age is the niche targeting and, and the narrower the niche, the better it is because you that's how you're going to get the amplifiers because you're speaking right to their heart because you've got a story that is – that resonates with something that they are incredibly passionate about, right? So Mm -hmm. you have to go small to get big online. And so you don't just target one niche. You may target several niches that, you know, maybe, maybe you really love genre. So yeah, you're going to try and tap into that horror audience. Maybe you're you're a female storyteller. So you're going to tap especially into people who love horror stories that come from a female perspective, or maybe it's from a certain cultural perspective. Um, But the other key is that, you know, so in Canada, we do not have the kinds of um, population base that you have in the U.S. So, you know, I might, maybe I've got my my film, my stories are really going to appeal to people who own white Persian cats. And, but in Canada, that may only be, you know, a thousand, ten thousand people. Mm-hmm. could really create a business model based on those people. But if I look globally, that's where the power comes in. That's why geoblocking is so harmful and ridiculous <laughs> because yeah. it doesn't actually match with the way that the digital wor- world works. They're putting it into this, again, old box because that's how they sold off the rights before. It was all based on geographic territories. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to put you know, this new, incredibly powerful, fluid um, medium into all these little tiny boxes and subsequently making it a lot less powerful. Yeah, interesting. You know, it just drives me crazy. I, I can't tell you how much geoblocking <laughs> drives me crazy because well, it's, it's it's such an artificial construct. Yeah, and we were taught, you know, we look at um, I forget the fellow's name. That's the uh, part of like Sherry Candler's uh, Google John Plus Reese. community. Not John Reed's, but there's just another. There's a fellow in France oh. that loves. He just he, he contributes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he contributes yeah. to a uh, conversation, but he was explaining from his perspective, like, you know, they just got Netflix, but he's frustrated too, because it's like, if he drives over to the next country, like his account changes, like the, the content, like his, so based off whatever country he goes to, he's not able to see his yeah. collective content with well, the geoblocking. It's interesting. I teach this online course and um, I've taught most of uh, the first uh, two cohorts in Canada have, are done and over. I'm about to launch the third, but I've also taught and will, I'm about to teach again in the new year a cohort in Sweden. So I've been learning a lot about the European audience and marketplace yeah. from their perspective. And they don't do that. They don't, they all have their workarounds. So they get US Netflix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the EU came out last spring saying, okay, we're going to have one digital marketplace. Right. And that freaked out the industry. <laughs> oh, yeah. So when they went to Con or MIPCOM, I can't remember which one it was. It was one of the big festivals. And then they said, okay, oh, okay, everyone's all freaked out. Okay. So, so, okay. So for everyone else except for media, 
will have one digital marketplace, oh but gosh. everyone else, it, you know, but for digital or for, for media, we'll still keep it cho- chopped up into these little ridiculous boxes, which, does, I mean, people, people want what they want when they want it. And we're, I think we have, what, the patience or attention span that's less than a goldfish now. Like, it doesn't take much for you to trigger friction points and impatience in an audience that is used to instant gratification. So if you make it too hard to get them the content they want, you know, you don't have to be a rocket science scientist to figure a workaround. I yeah. Mean, I just have to watch my children, you know, and those, those are the future. They're teenagers. They absolutely, especially the youngest one who's 14 and very technically inclined. It's very easy. I've caught her. I'm going, how are you getting, how are you seeing that? Yeah, yeah. You, I know there's no legal way for you to do that. I said, we believe from paying for content in this household, you are not doing any <laughs> and run around. We have to find the most legitimate way possible, even if it's painful. <laughs> it's interesting, but that's why like the, the majority of the piracy is coming from yep. like some of these European countries or yep. in, in, in Russia as well. It's like, if you're not making it easy for them to get access to, yep. They're just going to work or get a workaround on it. Yeah, well, I work – and the weird thing, you know, when you're doing promotion or audience building in a digital space is you can reach anyone anywhere in the world. So you create a desire for this story. And if people can't get it, um, you know, that's what triggers the piracy. And hopefully you're doing a good job. Like you're doing this outreach. You're building this audience. I worked for a television series here in Canada that was about medieval castles sort of pivotal battles through history that involve certain castles and it was only six episodes long Um, but one of our metrics for success that we watched was how fast episodes went up on Pirate Bay Hmm. Um, because we could then show that oh actually people in Finland are crazy for this right right (laughs) because you can actually get data on it so um, using that piracy data to actually have it be part of your you know, sales package for a project, or at least knowing where to target your to target your efforts, because you know there's an appetite for it. But it's it's yeah. I mean, I think indie people get too tied up in the piracy issue. It really isn't an issue for us. Like it, that, it's almost a good thing. You kind of, you want that <laughs> you want that des- uh, desire for your stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you know. Um, you said you know what are what are filmmakers selling like it's Mm -hmm. not you're right it's not really a film it's you know being part of something and I mean I love um, I just taught a big full day crowdfunding workshop here in my hometown and um, it was all about you know the rewards based crowdfunding and I mean and Emily of course you saw her I mean she works and has founded this amazing crowdfunding platform for mm-hmm. filmmakers that the crowdfunding piece is really just part of a continuum in terms of your relationship with your audience. You, you damn well better have built it before. <laughs> then you bring them to this opportunity where you're able to monetize them a little bit and you continue on doing other stuff afterwards with them. Right. My favorite form of crowdfunding is micro patronage. Explain a little bit more about that is. Well, there's a the I think the biggest platform for it is um, Patreon.com. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And it's basically, you know, the idea of, you know, back in the day, <laughs> King would be the patron of the arts. And so he would pay for all of Mozart's living expenses so he wouldn't have to worry about, could just compose amazing music. In our digital age, um, platforms like Patreon allow us all to chip in a little bit to invest in the creators we love, who we want to support. And, um, you know, I have a friend who makes about $2,000 a month doing that at $3 a pop. Fans are chipping in, you know, $3, $4, comes off their credit card on a regular basis. They basically subscribe mm-hmm. to him. I mean, he's got an online content ecosystem around uh, space, news and articles of interest and and he does video content too and to get the access to his content ad free they are willing to pay you know have i mean money that you wouldn't even really notice coming off your credit card every month yeah. but collectively you know and there's a podcaster here in Canada that makes i think about $14,000 a month i think i was looking um Amanda Palmer the singer makes like a lot of money every month like yeah over $200,000 or something a month just from micro patrons on Patreon. So I think, you know, if you can, if you can, and I, what, what else I get really excited about, because I think it puts value back on where it belongs, which isn't so much in the creations, but in the creator. Hmm. And I think, you know, because our system has been so structured to put, I mean, the, our system is built on things that people can buy and sell, whether it was books or DVDs or tapes back in the day, you know, and the systems that made these things needed to have stuff put in them, right? So right. they had these creators that they had to grudgingly, you know, invest in and pay to make the movies and the stories and the, you know, everything that we put in these things that people buy and sell. Well, now we're in this digital age where... um you know, we don't need to have a thing anymore. You have a digital file that, you know, can be accessed and available. And so there's no thing anymore. And, but we've devalued the creators for so long that we've forgotten <laughs> <laughs> how awesome they are and why they need to be supported in their telling of stories or singing of songs or, you know, making whatever it is that they make. So that's why I really love the micro patronage model because it doesn't so much become it, it recognizes the continuum of a creative life and a relationship with an audience that at the end of the day that's that's the ticket that's the key to the future yeah and you're looking at just like you're mentioning this the numbers if someone is you know making around two thousand a month off patrons that are just you know, paying three dollars a month Yep. The number of transactions or number of patrons are as small as 600 and like, 600, yep. like 675 people. Yeah. So that is really exciting because it's like you yep. don't have to reach millions of people. You exactly. only have to reach, as Kevin Kelly's you know famous blog post, a thousand true fans. But yes. there is some truth in that. Yep. And it's uh, it should be liberating. It should feel like there's empowerment right there for all artists to grab hold of. Yeah. Um, yeah, the micro patronage as well as there's a that whole movement of the, the micro loans. 
you know, uh, so I love your analogy of the king bestowing (laughs) the money upon the artists, you know, and commissioning as opposed to, you know, the banks were the only ones who had large enough money to grant you the loan. Now there's these smaller entities that could do it. And I love that stuff too. So in your presentation, Mm -hmm. um, what are some of your, like, favorite case studies or an example like if you were to to give an illustration of everything that you were talking about that you'd love to point to yeah well I mean I've, I've mentioned my friend the space news guy mm-hmm. um, he's the one who has the, the yes. patrons I mean he has been doing it Fraser Kane right Fra- Fraser Kane Fraser yep. um, his website is universetoday.com he also has uh, a podcast and a web series um and uh, it's a pretty amazing story. He's, you know, he's not afraid to test and fail. Like he's, <laughs> I think that's the other thing that people get really caught up on, you know, like, but what if I fail spectacularly in front of the world? Well, you know, I think we, failing is part of success. We don't just instantly succeed. And I think we learn more from pushing our models in different directions and seeing where they fail. And Fraser's certainly done that. You know, he's had all kinds of experiments. He even developed, because so much of his stuff early on was based in keyword research, he actually developed his own keyword research platform, um, which went along for a long time. But now he, you know, he's no longer doing that. He's, He's always jumping from from one thing to the other. So not only does he have the micro patronage income, he has his ad revenue. Um, He's part of uh, Google's premium ad exchange program. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the most fascinating things is as he's developed and evolved the relationship with his audience over the years and got them um, you know, more invested in every sense of the word, financially, emotionally, he's been actually able to move them. So he's got this weekly podcast, uh, I think it's called Space um, Hangouts. So it's like a Google Plus um yeah, like a Google Hangout thing. thing. Yeah. Right. So he basically, he's got 400 fans who are now executive producers who do manage all the logistics. So they source the interviewees. They, you know, set it all up and and all Fraser has to do is show up and you know for the half hour hour of great conversation and um so I mean but and they and they're winning all kinds of crazy little awards in their in their particular niche they're getting lots of recognition and each one of these 400 plus fans it has a piece of it they feel ownership it's a real it's a true collaboration um, in the best sense of the word, it's I think where we're all kind of wanting to evolve to if we can. I mean, we don't want to, but it's that kind of relationship, that kind of investment is just amazing. Let me. I was curious. Like, yeah, I'm looking. Uh, see, nobody can see what I can see. We're on audio, but I can see your your video that you put together, the presentation. So I'm like, okay. oh, this is cool. It's very cool. It, it, from a, can I ask you from like a filmmaker's perspective, like is hmm. the um, someone who's trying to create a narrative? Let's just cut to like they're trying to make like a horror movie obviously mm-hmm. and there's all in within there's a sub niche let's say it's a zombie film because everybody's got a zombie film <laughs> yes so, they do. heaven help us <laughs> so, so i know that you have um 
you have a course that you sell, um, and it's called Storypreneurs. Uh, what's the full title of the course? Well, that you're... The, the co- name of the course is Becoming a Storypreneur, Digital Marketing for Screen Media Creatives. Okay, great. So yeah. you have this course, and I, and, and you were talking about the, the importance of search. Is there a way that uh, you can kind of take us through, as much as you can, I mean, over online, about sort of the the thought process or what they could look into, like, or what's offering the course in a sense of, all right, I'm a filmmaker. I've got a zombie film. How would I use search to get my particular film in front of the correct audience? And so what are, so what is the meta, I don't know, processes that you would recommend or just hinting towards like, oh, this is changing the perspective of a filmmaker looking yeah. into search and then going, oh, that's why I probably should maybe check out this course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, the course is very applied, Uh because I am tired of, um, you know, everyone talking. We've been talking for a long time and mm-hmm. people get inspired, but nothing ever happens. So I am big on rolling up your sleeves and getting stuff done. So the course is very practical and very applied. It's break, broken out over eight different modules that has homework for each module. If you do the homework for each module, at the end, you will have all the bits and pieces that you need to put into a digital um, business and marketing plan. So you have this document that you can use either to attract investment, to you know have um, a touchstone for your entire team as you're moving a project forward. Uh, it can be used in in multiple different ways, and uh, I believe it's in the third module. Um, the set of sort of homework around it is all about that opportunity around search. So it does teach people. Um, the processes of keyword research and and um, sort of understanding and learning about the value of understanding the language of your audience because you can use it in a number of ways. So with this Google AdWords tool, you start putting um, you know words and phrases that you think um, people would be interested in, and maybe you discover, lo and behold, there is an untapped interest in zombie parrot movies parrot stories mm-hmm. maybe there's you know uh you know you discover that there's a you know a, a thousand searches a month for zombie parrot stuff and you do some searches and you say oh well no one no one's doing zombie parrot stories i've got this whole audience i can tap into that's really into and maybe there's some crossover i could do with pirates and so you you sort of build out what i call the language ecosystem around your project Sometimes you can use this information to, um, if you have, if you don't have a completed script already, you can use it to nudge and adjust things in your story or narrative to appeal to this interest that you know is there. Um, you can also use this data, you know, collectively, sort of once you've built out. Um, one of the other things I call is a language bible, where. Like, like for a TV series, you always have the story Bible that sort of gives you the touchstones for the story as the writers are working um, and moving the story forward. Well, this is the language Bible. So you would have, you know, you're going to be talking about parrots today and you mm-hmm. can go and you can see, well, these are the kinds of phrases and things that people are interested in parrots. So maybe I'll write a, a blog post about this particular topic or I'll do a social media post about this particular topic and I will use um, the language that I've discovered in my research to attract an audience to me 
either through the mechanism of Google or through Facebook or wherever I'm trying to build um, presence. Because the one corollary I will say is that, you know, Google isn't, search is not synonymous with Google. Mm -hmm. Anywhere that there's a search box is a search engine. So this means YouTube, this means Facebook, this means Twitter, this means your own website if you have a search box. Um, anywhere that there is a search box, there is a search engine. And so understanding that behavior better when people are actively trying to find something um, give, is just, it's so powerful. And once you start using the language of your audience, you basically build, are building a bridge to them through this mechanism of search and pulling perhaps people that are not in your immediate circle, that have never heard about you before, but they discover that, oh, there's this amazing resource, resource online and cool stories about zombie parrots. And I love zombie parrots. <laughs> like maybe you find, you know, oh, there's this weird little web series over in Austria. <laughs> it was all about uh, zombie parrots and they've developed this really weird European following. Um, so is that a competitor? No, not in our world. You know, if I really am passionate about stories about zombie parrots, I want all the zombie parrot stories I can get. So that becomes a potential partnership and collaborator for you. So we've got here, it can help you, um, you know, tweak your story to appeal to an audience. It can help you find partnerships and opportunities. It can help you attract investment. It can help you, you know, attract an audience to you. There's just so many things about that particular data set around language that is an opportunity. I mean, and even also like, you know, every audience often has their you know, little bits of lingo and, and ways of speaking so they know that you're one of us and not one of, you know, not an outsider, not a, a pretender. So it even allows you to speak the audience of your, um, the language of your audience more authentically and therefore build an audience that is going to be on your side, is going to be on board because you show up at this community, you talk the talk, you provide value in an authentic way and it allows them when you're finally ready to sort of bring them along to your project for them to see it, you know, not as a spammy intrusion, but as, you know, a supporting, you know, a beloved member of their zombie parrot community. <laughs> right, right. It's funny. I remember doing like a Google AdWords search just between the, the terms film and movie. Oh, yeah. Movie has a greater um, numbers of searches than film. Yeah. However, when you dig deeper, like the general public sees things as like a movie, but like film, I guess independent filmmakers, like yeah. they re they prefer the the term film. So and, and cinema. Cinema. There you go. There's another one. <laughs> so I I just quickly uh, as you were talking about zombie Paris and so on, I brought <laughs> I brought up actually in Google uh, keyword planner. Uh, yeah. zombies and so the average searches per month is well over 700,000 uh, 700, but getting closer to August and September just recently it jumped over to a million a million and a half searches per month for the term zombie but in the ad group ideas it's interesting because uh, they show um, the major searches are for zombie survival Mm -hmm. or zombies free or real zombie you know yeah. so if i if i was making a zombie film like that and um and you just uh, the the concept i understand would be wow i didn't think about zombie survival so right. like i would i would then write 
blog posts or do videos or do snapshots mm. of of content that's around zo- zombie survival. Yeah, uh, is that how you, we would look at looking yeah, applying absolutely. the knowledge? And also, you just noted that there's an uptick, right? Because mm-hmm. in this particular, obviously, and I know that I I work on this um, television show here that has uh, it's about paranormal investigators. Okay, and I, we know from because we we're into our third year now with them. What, what's the name of the show? I'm sorry. It's called um, The Other Side. Okay. It, Definitely. It's from Canada. It, it's kind of interesting because it has a First Nations or Native Canadian um, take on the, most of the team is First Nations. Mm-hmm. So they bring that sort of Native spirituality aspect to it. It's quite an interesting little oh, show. So, just... um, but and we're, we're doing a live, live streamed paranormal investigation on October 29th. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> so I'm doing promotion for them right now. We're actually going to... Um, uh, premier the, the second season premieres here in Canada on Halloween, and we pushed for that because we could see through the search activity, mm-hmm. we know when interest peaks, right? So we know that, as you said, end of August, September into October, <laughs> huge amount of interest that rises because leading up to Halloween, like just right. massive, and then it tends to drop off um, and lull again to about February, and then it kind of hums along until it hits that crest again of August, September, yeah. October. So definitely seasonality could inform you things about release and all that kind of stuff to try and maximize opportunity because you know, you know, I was working on this other thing that was about gardening. We, we've actually found that, um, you know, the peak was in the, the early spring when people were starting to plan their gardens. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, again, it gives you some, it can help give you shape to timelines in terms of your thing is about your story is about something very specific it can really help you um identify and give a timeline to the sort of the dates you should be hitting because you know that there's active interest at that particular time of the year yeah 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 interesting yeah Yeah, and i'm it this is just like the we are just scratching the surface on the concept of using search to help better craft your content Mm -hmm. so that it does provide service you know like if like you said going back to what you originally said stop thinking yourself as a production company turn yourself into a service company serving an audience but you got to figure out your own specific audience and the 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 keyword search or searches allow you to know the language and then apply your content to serve that audience so I think it's fantastic. Um, we're about to hit the hour, you know, Excellent. and and um, there's so much content that we talked about. So much. <laughs> but I want to make sure that I'm not missing anything because you have a lot of links. I'm going to make sure I put up like the other side. Um, uh, the show. Other, other side, it's theothersidetv.ca is the, the television show. Varia.ca is my website. And if you go to storypreneursunite.com, that takes you to the information about the course. Um, I'll be running another iteration of it in the spring. So the next cohort will be probably starting around mid-April. Cool. I've got all those links. I'll put, make sure to put them into the show notes as well so people can find it and all that good stuff. And I'm at tweet on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Annalise, I... I can't thank you enough for you know taking the hour to share with us um, your experience and and sort of just kind of geeking out a little bit with me on the hey. <laughs> on that marketing another brain side of twin I love it. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's really cool. Yeah, I once you start talking more about that, believe me, my brain was like, wait, 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 wait. Hey, so if we had this scenario, how would we? How would they apply it? And then Scott, where would they go the with it? <laughs> I'm not making a zombie movie, but everybody has a zombie movie, and it's it's fascinating to look in the data because I don't know. I'm sure you when we talk about geeking out about it is somebody revealing to you sort of some truths that you yeah. didn't know, and it's like. Ah, like even like I said, that the, the the difference between people using the term film and movie and like cinema, but yeah. it just it, it gives you this bit of knowledge that go, oh, so I'm not just th- putting stuff out into the void. I can actually craft this digital media, this content, this film, this whatever I'm making to much you know much more loyal audience potentially you know <laughs> yeah well and, and be strategic because yeah. we don't have all the time in the world so if you can be smarter work smarter instead of harder and the digital world gives you so much ability to be able to do that it's exciting yeah definitely and like i said the problem is the, the only thing that's been really shown to us is sort of the traditional hollywood system which is a yeah. shotgun approach like hey i don't know what's coming out this weekend hope yeah. you guys come see it you know <laughs> You only need $35 million. To yeah, play. yeah. Just to make a little bit of a dent. And, you know, we're, we're not playing that world, so we have to uh, use some different rules. But yeah. uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much. And, oh, my great uh, pleasure. And I will see you online. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we will. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Scott. Bye-bye. And that concludes my interview with Annalise Larson at varia.ca. And you heard us talking about this presentation that she made at the Vancouver International Film Festival. And the presentation is called DNA of Discoverability, Discovering a Business Model in the Data. Data or data. I don't know. Either way, I will leave the links in the show notes below at filmtrooper.com forward slash this would be episode 96. We're almost at 100 episodes, so if you enjoy this podcast, think about leaving a ratings and review over at iTunes. Just go to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes, and I'll take you to the iTunes page. And, of course, you don't want to leave empty-handed here. If you stuck around this long for the podcast, then get something really valuable. All you have to do is go to filmtrooper.com and sign up for the free three-part video series on the new adventures in film distribution. I think you're going to really, really enjoy it because if you have questions about the world that the Uber independent filmmaker is going to be playing in in terms of film distribution, then you want to see this free three-part video series. Again, just head on over to filmtrooper.com and it's all there, all for you. Just sign up and get it. Thanks everyone for tuning in for another episode of the Film Trooper Podcast. I will see you next time. 